And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Norwich go nine in a row. Boya, more like hell yeah. Lee brings blue success in first game in charge. And Barrow wheel out another win. That's right. This is the Totally Football League show. Extra time in association with Paddy Power. I'm your host, Ali Maxwell. I've got an EFL on Quest hangover after a night spent with Colin Murray and Ian Holloway. So just the tonic, hair of the dog, as I call him, George Ellick alongside me. Uh, George, big week in managerial news in the EFL. Still one possible appointment to come on the South Coast, but it's been tricky to keep up with it all this week. Yeah, it has been. We are going to have to play it safe because there is a risk that anything we talk about here could go out of date pretty quickly. So we have a an interview coming up talking all things Birmingham City. Lee Bowyer, the new manager there, getting his first win in his first game in charge against Reading 2-1 on Wednesday evening. So we have recruited Blues fan and commentator Ian Danter to talk us through how the Birmingham fans are feeling at the moment. We've also got, of course, the Tuffle Setmers, the awards of the midweek, and also looking ahead uh, to some weekend previews of a big game in each Championship League One, League Two, including a very, very fiery derby in Wales. Always a risk on this show that anything we say ages as badly as you have, George, in lockdown. I can see the grey hairs <laughs> through Zoom all the way from here. Uh, plenty to come, but first, let's take a look at the midweek results. So, as is often the case, just after we press stop on the recording of this podcast, this clip was tweeted from Charlton Athletic's official account as Thomas Sangard came to announce that... Nigel Atkins is our new head coach manager for our first team at Charlton. So two main takeaways from that video tweeted by Charlton of Thomas Sangard. First is that he wears the same attire to join the Totally Football League show Extra Time podcast as he does to announce Charlton Athletic's new manager, Nigel Adkins, back in a job, a two and a half year contract with Charlton and a genuine chance at a League One promotion over the next few months. Listen to Monday's show to get the reaction from all the guys and further details on that appointment. Place your bets. Welcome to Pep Roulette. Ta, I'm feeling confident today, me. So your selection, sir? To start off from blue number nine and ten. Seventeen as well, just behind the front two. Good luck, sir. Blue number seven, unlucky, sir. Sterling, he started last week. Predicting Pep's lineups can be tricky these days, but fortunately, with Paddy Power's Acker offer, if you don't get one leg of your four plus fold Acker right, we'll give you your money back as a free bet. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, mid odds 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive, exclude shop bets, excludes enhanced match odds, season season, 18 plus, big gamble On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad free on The Athletic. This is the Totally Football League Show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. George, we take our 
self-appointed role as gatekeepers of midweek EFL football very, very seriously. We feel that it often goes unnoticed, especially when, like this midweek, it wasn't necessarily a full slate, a full docket of EFL fixtures. We think sometimes the results and the stories go missing a little bit in the hullabaloo of the working week. And we're here to make sure that you, the listener, know exactly what's gone on. All the stories, some quotes as well, although none from Neil Warnock this week to make a change. Uh, George, let's start with our championship team of the week. There were some significant winners in the champ this midweek. Who's the best of them? I'm giving it to a team who won, I think, what we can probably call a dead rubber. It was QPR <laughs> against Millwall. Two sides who... I think their fans and probably the the management would say that they still retain some hope of, of breaking into the playoff picture. But at the current you know moment in time, they're both twelve points off um, that last playoff place. And certainly because of the result here, Millwall, who were higher in the league, are uh, are pretty unlikely to get in there now. But even 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 so, QPR to come back from a two goal deficit to come back and win three two. So, so impressive. Jed Wallace and Mason Bennett got the first two goals for Millwall in the first half. And rather than telling you how it went, I think Mark Warburton, QPR manager, does a pretty good job of summing up that first half. We recognised at half-time we had to improve and react quickly. Um, next goal was, of course, going to be important. Three, they would have finished the game off. Uh, and we got that. You know, we got that. I kept trying to make substitutions and we suddenly scored. And again, they suddenly go to two all. But we were on the front foot. We moved the ball quicker second half. Our positional play was far better. We looked dangerous. We had width and attack. We, and we looked to really threaten inside. But as I said, the boys, we played like you know, men in the second half, boys in the first half. Yeah, Warburton wanted a reaction and he certainly got one because the second half display was absolutely brilliant. The first goal from Charlie Austin. I mean, Gary Rowett after the game said it, he, it was terrible to let Austin get to the ball first, but it's such a good header, a kind of glancing header from 15, 16 yards out just inside the area into the far corner. Charlie Austin still proving that when you provide him with chances, even if they are half chances or snapshots or snap headers even, he is able to put the ball in the back of the net. The second from Stephanie Hansen finished really well after a nice uh, after a nice move. And then in a game of good headers, Jordy Device with a brilliant goal from a corner, another glancer looping over into the far corner from a corner. Um, really impressive. And that's what I like about this was that QPR... Uh, for, for much of this season, you felt, especially in the first half, never really replaced the likes of a Berrieze very well. It feels like they're a, they're a side who haven't been particularly good in the transfer market in recent times. Year on year, their squad is seemingly getting worse, losing their best players and not really improving them. And I'm f- by no means saying any of these players have replaced Eze and all three of them alone signings. But interesting to note that Austin, Johansson and Device, three mm. players brought in to improve them in January on loan. And uh, all three getting the goals here. And I think any team, we've said it before, any team who comes back from a 2-0 deficit to win 3-2 probably deserves to be team of the week, even if it's not a particularly important game. Tiffle Settmer, number one for QPR. I've just cricked my neck trying a snap header, uh, which you mm. <laughs> mentioned in that, one of those snap headers that you get. Um, the Championship Player of the Week actually scored a snap header. Daryl DK of Barnsley <laughs> Part of this remarkable Barnsley story at the moment, I mean, from outside the playoffs to firmly within them, and if anything, wondering whether they might be able to challenge the top two with uh, nine games to go. It's absolutely brilliant. And DK is a huge part of the story. As for Wednesday night against Wickham, well, he showed 
kind of everything that makes him a real prospect, I think. Strength and aerial ability, specifically a leap on him, which is insane for his first goal to get above the Wickham centre-backs and head home. And then more of a uh, more of a poacher's finish, a number nine type goal for the second. Good movement um, in between defenders, getting on the end of a good cross from the right-hand side and a very good instinctive finish. And that's five goals in 10 now for DK, uh, like some of those QPR players, Barnsley improved their squad in January, specifically with the signings of DK and of Carlton Morris, whose goals have helped take them to the next level and helped take some of the goal-scoring burden off Corley Woodrow and the centre-backs who are so lively from set plays. And, I mean, the whole Barnsley story is amazing and crazy, and, and DK's mirrors that. He signed for Barnsley on deadline day, 1st of February, on loan from Orlando City in MLS. They drafted him a year before number five in MLS's Super Draft. And he's a really highly rated, talented young player over there. So it's a bit of a peculiar one that Orlando let him go. MLS's season doesn't start until March, of course. So it might be that they were looking for him to get match fit and to come back in time for the MLS season. But because of what he's done... There's now a lot of interest in him and concrete info is hard to come by on the specifics of the detail. But Barnsley have always said they've got an option to buy. There's, as I say, varying opinions on how large the transfer fee would have to be. But it's been an incredible pickup and it's made even stranger by the fact that DK on the night of the 31st of January played for the US national team. They had a friendly against Trinidad and Tobago. It was an MLS-only squad of players, so no players from Europe. And therefore, DK got a chance, 20 minutes off the bench, his US national team debut. And had he not made that debut, he would not have been eligible to join Barnsley under the new immigration rules of the United Kingdom. So if he hadn't been brought off the bench, if the manager had decided to to keep him off uh, on the bench in that game against Trinidad and Tobago, he wouldn't have been able to sign for Barnsley. So the whole thing is just pretty crazy and feeds into this amazing success story of Barnsley. And, it, it, you know, I couldn't love it more, basically. He's a very likeable bloke talks about how his brother is his hero, uh, Bright DK. He played professionally in the US and was capped Nigeria. So much to like about DK, including how quickly Georgie picked up English football slang so quickly. This was after scoring his first goal back in February. Buzzing to get my first goal. Another big win. Come on, you Reds. Infectious enthusiasm, really buying into the, the Barnsley way at the moment and a very valuable player for them in the last part of the season, even if... Orlando City's MLS season starts pretty soon and they probably want DK back for it. Everyone is buzzing about Barnsley right now. <laughs> He's our Championship Player of the Week. Into League One Team of the Week. And I'm always happy to be able to talk about Oxford. Uh, I think I try my hardest to not select Oxford players or the team for this uh, for this award in case being accused of, uh, of slightly... Um, <laughs> favoring bias, the, George. It's the, called bias. The, the team that I love. I don't want to say that. Favoring. <laughs> but yeah, it was a massive win for Oxford at home to Doncaster. And the significance of this win isn't only that it's come towards the end of a pretty difficult run of form. You know, they'd only won 
one of their last eight matches before this game. That was, of course, against Swindon Town, winning 2-1 at the county ground. Uh, but picked up kind of enough draws in that time to stay in touch with the playoff places. But crucially, the reason why this why this 3-0 win was so important, and, you know, Oxford played very well. They were 3-0 clear in the first half. Matty Taylor back amongst the goals, having gone 12 games in the league without a goal, 14-0 competitions. So really important for Oxford to get him back scoring again. The key thing here is that this is the first game this season that Oxford have won against a team in the top 10 of League One. Now, that is an embarrassing record. That's a record that I'm sure Carl Robinson will either know or if he doesn't know, would not like to hear. I mean, there have been decent performances within that. A couple of games that Oxford will feel like they could have done better in. But for them to be where they are this season, you know, the classic flat trap bullies, I guess. But it's coming to the stage now where if the club want to get into the playoffs, not only are they going to have to beat teams around them if they do get there, but they have to take points off the teams above them. You know, losing to Hull last week without really threatening too much 2-0 with Keane Lewis Potter stealing the show. It was another example of just the best teams in League One proving to be a better side than Oxford. But here, albeit against a Doncaster side, you can understand if there's a bit of a, a drop-off now with Darren Moore having left and Andy Butler taking on the reins as a rookie manager. They blitzed this Donny team. I mean, there were, there were 43 shots in the game, both sides topping 20. So it wasn't as if it was one-way traffic. But Oxford had by far and away the better of the game, um, the better chances. Brandon Barker, who came in in January, was looked just a total threat for the, for the hour that he was on. Every time he got on the ball, he was sticking uh, Doncaster on the back foot. Olamide Shadipo c- c- continuing his brilliant goal scoring for the club as well. It feels like a, a bit of a watershed moment after a club record win winning run on the bounce, followed up by a pretty poor run of form. This game serves as evidence that Oxford is still there to be taken seriously and that they can beat those teams above them. Good midweek for Oxford United. Good midweek for a former Oxford United favourite. And he's our player of the week. It's Jordan Graham of Gillingham. And I'm going to ask you a little bit about Graham in a second, George, because I'm interested in his career so far. And I want to just Mm. dig a little bit deeper. But on the surface, he's our player of the week because of his performance in Gillingham's 3-0 win against Lincoln City in midweek. Jill's blitzing Lincoln, you have to say, in the first half. And Graham, at the heart of it, Verdane Oliver is getting most of the headlines at the moment. In fact, I think he's won a recent Tuffle Setmer himself uh, with seven goals in his last six league games. But I think a lot of what Oliver is able to do and the way in which he is able to thrive is thanks to the delivery of Jordan Graham and the quality that he has. Um, I think he hasn't been talked about in wider discussions about the best players in League One, Graham. And thinking about it, you have to say some of that is down to who he plays for. Gillingham for whatever reasons, I think can call themselves an unfashionable team in League One at the moment. And therefore, maybe Graham isn't getting the praise that he would were he playing for maybe a a bigger club or a club that plays more aesthetically pleasing football or I don't know necessarily what it is. But there's nothing unfashionable about the goals and assists that Graham's getting this season. Um, And he, well, his style is direct. It's, It's kind of an old school wing play style, 79 more crosses than anyone else in League One this season. That is his thing, and Gillingham played to his strengths. That was on show in Lincoln in the first half here, standing up across for Oliver, who headed home. That was his third assist for Oliver this season, and Oliver himself has assisted three Jordan Graham goals. So really fertile combination, those two. Uh, And later in the game, he won and scored a penalty as well. So it was a brilliant performance. And I just find him quite interesting, George. He's, He's only 25 now, but... 
I felt like he might have been older because he's been around for quite a long time without ever playing very much football. He was really highly rated youth player for Aston Villa between, you know, like 16 and 19. He played for the England youth age groups at, uh, at that time. And then five years at Wolves between 2015 and 2020, he just never found a proper pathway and it was constant loans, really. The only other time Jordan Graham has played over a thousand minutes in a season, which if you think about it, is only about 12 games worth, was at Oxford United on loan in the first half of the 2018-2019 season. And I seem to remember you being quite a big fan of him then. So it's not necessarily like this is a, a surprise breakout season. This is just someone getting a chance to play for a whole season for a club where he can kind of call home. Yeah, he was incredible for us. You know, he, he's had two loan spells, the, the first of which, <clears throat> I, I mean, I think the time he played more for us was, was in the second spell. But the first spell yeah. back in 2015, he came in and he was just way too good. Like way, way too good to be playing in League Two. His delivery was just, yeah, I mean, beyond what we'd really seen at that level. And he went back to Wolves in that season having played for us and had a run of games in 15-16 in the championship where he was one of their best players in the championship. Like immediately he came into the Wolves side and Wolves fans were very excited about him coming in. And then he suffered a really, really bad knee injury, which which kind of rocked his his career, basically. Um, he came back to Oxford and was, I mean, you know, at, at a higher level, wasn't as good as he was the first time, still showed flashes um, some talk as well that there was a bit of a personality clash between him and Carl Robinson. Um, of course, it was Michael Appleton who managed him the first time around. So, yeah, I, I don't think he was the player that he was before the injury. But, you know, there's no surprise that if he's regaining that kind of form, you know, he that he shouldn't he shouldn't be a League One footballer. You know, he was destined back in 2015 after the um, after the, the loan with us and the run of games at Wolves. I don't see why if he hadn't got injured, he wouldn't still be part of that Wolves setup. Mm, interesting. Well, he's on the right path, that's for sure. He's found a home and a manager in Steve Evans getting the best out of him. But you would think that there'll be interest in him over the summer. In the meantime, he is our player of the week for League One, which takes us to League Two. George, it was a it was a crazy midweek in League Two in, in many ways because eight of the bottom nine teams played and none of them lost. And things are getting just very <laughs> tight at all ends of the table. But who were our team of the week? Port Vale. Uh, Daryl Clark getting his first win as Port Vale manager at home to a Newport side who are resurgent, who've been playing really well in recent weeks, who've started picking up wins again after that terrible run of form themselves. When you look a bit into look a bit further into Port Vale's recent run, it becomes obvious that you know we talk about teams being unlucky pretty consistently. They have been totally luckless recently. You know they they've gone eight games without a win. They hadn't scored in the last four games at home. They've taken 54 shots in those four games. I mean, this is Brighton levels of of uh, wastefulness in front of goal. Um, and this was coming. You know, you look back at the game in midweek against Bolton where they were they created the better chances in the game. They created more chances and lost 1-0. And they took the lead here through a really nice finish from Tom, Tom Conlon, a lovely ball from uh, from Worrell to get the assist, as is often the case. Port Vale so reliant on him for creating the chances. And Newport then came forward and had the better of the game at 1-0 rattled the crossbar with an incredible effort and then uh, and then took sorry then got the equaliser and you wouldn't have been surprised then to see a Port Vale side who were down on their confidence who hadn't won for a long time who were struggling to score kind of retreat back into their shell but absolutely none of it you know Daryl Clark is certainly a manager who wears his heart on his sleeve who, who looks to get reactions from his players and that was shown by the way that Port Vale came back at Newport 
and were able to find a goal, albeit a very, very scrappy one from Devante Rodney, again, Worrell providing the assist. So, you know, I said to you off air, Ali, that I came into this pod thinking that the narrative around Port Vale was, you know, that first win for Darrell Clark, they've been really poor recently, this is the beginning of something better. But in researching for this podcast, because listener, you might be surprised, we do do a little bit of research before coming on and chatting about EFL stuff. A touch. I, just a little bit. Um, you maybe a bit more than me. If you look at the, the length of our notes, often Ali has whole reams of, of paper, whereas mine's just an A4. Um, but uh, but Port Vale haven't been poor. Port Vale have been unlucky. They have been due this result. And you know, whilst the, the, that run of form has taken them towards the relegation zone, um, they're probably not really there on merit at the moment. And more performances like, like the ones they've been putting previously and this one against Newport, and they should pick up more points to take them well away from, from the drop. George, the bullet point Alec there uh, with the League Two <laughs> team of the week. Uh, our player of the week. Well, in order to tell you who our player of the week is, first, we have to acknowledge that Barrow were the big winners in Cheltenham on day one of the Cheltenham Festival, you have to say. <laughs> and well, we Normally, to... when, the, when the wheelbarrows come out this time, it's just the Barrow. <laughs> and it's a Barrow player that's player of the week. And is it Neil Ardley? The right back with an amazing clearance off the line in the first half. Someone who joined in January with a wealth of EFL experience, which was potentially lacking elsewhere in the squad and seemingly has had a huge impact, not just on the pitch for his sort of depend dependableness, dependability, for, for how much you can depend on him, but also for his leadership. Or maybe, George, it was Tom Davies on loan from Bristol Rovers lodged in the heart of the Barrow back line, organising things, winning every single defensive battle that he had. It, maybe it was James Jones playing alongside Davies, the defender who scored his first ever EFL goal to put Barrow ahead in this game. He was he found himself quite high up the pitch, Jones, and he cut in from the right side and sw- swung in a cross. Maybe swung in is the wrong word. It was a, a low left-footed cross. I wouldn't say he scuffed it but I don't think it necessarily had the trajectory that he would have dreamt of. And yet it bounced all the way into the far corner, like this bobbly low cross. Or as James Jones himself described it, got to say, I didn't think my first Barrow EFL goal would be a 25-yard left footer. But I guess guess you just don't save those. Um, And, you know, that was kind of the theme of the day, Barrow's second goal, a long throw, which the Cheltenham goalkeeper booted or punched off the back of the Cheltenham defender and put Barrow 2 up. Maybe the player of the week is Jason Taylor, sitting in front of the back line, winning every single midfield battle against his former employers, Cheltenham. Or maybe it's Scott Quigley, who led the line brilliantly. Basically, you get the idea. It's a, a, a wheelbarrow, if you will, of players of the week, all from the same team. And shout out to Rob Kelly as well. It was only a few weeks ago that you talked us through the the fascinating career that Rob Kelly has had. He is something of a reluctant manager, I think it's fair to say. But he's now picked up more points in nine games in charge of Barrow than David Dunn and Michael Jolly managed in 24. And I'm thinking, if we've got the budget, we need to get the TFLS ET logo on the front of Barrow's shirts next (laughs) season if Rob Kelly is still in charge. There we go. That's our best effort at giving you the runners and riders from the midweek action. Next up, we're talking about a team owned by Trillion Trophies Asia, getting much closer to their trillionth manager before they get anywhere near their first trophy. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football League show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. As mentioned at the top of the show, a busy week managerially in the EFL, in the Championship and in League One, and maybe nowhere more so than at Birmingham City. So we're delighted to be joined by Ian Danter, commentator for Talk Sports, someone who watches more live EFL football than, than anyone else, I dare say. But Ian, uh, Birmingham City, never too far from your heart, too far from your mind uh, as a big Blues fan. And what a whirlwind few days since the, the weekend defeat, uh, filled with rumour, managerial changes and three points against Reading on Wednesday night. I know it, it it's all rounded off very nicely Ali with that with the win but what led up to it the the, the shenanigans and the the complete lack of you know continuity to the way that Itor Karanka's dismissal was handled mm. uh and Lee Boyer being an open secret that he was the new manager before you know the official word had even been put out about Itor Karanka's sacking it's it's just classic Birmingham Absolute classic Birmingham. And you say a whirlwind for the last couple of weeks. It's been a whirlwind for the last decade since yeah. relegation. It's just been, as you know, Ali, story after story after mm. story after near miss, after managerial appointment, after shock sacking, after shock appointment, uh, points deductions. Goodness me, never a dull moment. I, you're right to, to point out that it's been as managerial sackings go, quite messy. And, you know, we often say you can judge how together a club is by how much leakage there is of news like this. I mean, Karanka's supposed departure was was out there on Sunday morning, I think, and yet not confirmed for a few days. And as you say, the, the Bowyer appointment, uh, it seemed to be out there before the club really responded to anything. Uh, well, there's there's two elements to this. First, you had Thomas Sangard, the Charlton owner, telling my colleague on Talksport, Jim White, that Lee Bowyer was going to Birmingham in a, in, a, in an interview. Uh, right. I think that was on Monday morning. But the day before, you were talking about Sunday, was apparently um, a belated birthday party for the Birmingham CEO, Juan Dong Ren, that all the players had to attend at the West Hills training ground. <laughs> The players were informed at this impromptu dinner lunch thing that their manager had been relieved of his duties after the defeat to Bristol City. So one of those players or somebody in that room leaked that information. Uh, The Daily Mirror was the first to run the story. Mm -hmm. And that was actually prior to Sandgard speaking live on the radio about Lee Bowyer leaving Charlton ostensibly to come to Birmingham. And that's where the mess started. And you ended up with a statement, a 21-word statement for Karanka's departure on the Tuesday. Quite fitting, seeing as we're in 21st place. <laughs> and then following that, hot on its heels, was a, a, a gushing, glowing, uh, long-winded uh, welcome to Lee Bowyer, which couldn't have been more in contrast to the, uh, the shortly-worded statement about his predecessor. Yeah, it's it's one of those 
conversations where there's a few different things to tackle the departure of Karanka, the appointment of Boya and maybe overriding it, the, the, the governance of the club. So let me just ask you about the dismissal of Aitor Karanka. Messy mm-hmm. as it was, I didn't sense a great deal of dismay from the fan base and dare I say it from the squad themselves uh, that Karanka wouldn't be leading the, the club for the last, what, 10 games of the season. No, I think you're spot on. I don't think there were many uh, many in his corner by the end of it all because the body language was horrible, Ali. You know, the, the, the shrugometer, as I came to call it, uh, came into play. You watched his post-match touchline interviews with the official club, uh, you know, uh, Twitter feed, and you could count 20, 30 shrugs of the shoulder in a two-minute clip that was put out on Twitter about his, you know, his inability to work out why they'd lost a game or why they conceded this or why they hadn't done that. And that was actually born into, brought into even sharper relief by, you know, just going forward to Harley Dean's winner last night. His goal celebration was a shrug. It yes. was a clear signal to uh, Aitor Karanka that that's what you're going to be remembered for. And you did us clearly the playing staff didn't appear to be missing him too much. But the, the die was cast for um, for some time. I think I remember, you'll know this better than me, Ali, because there, there, was a, there was a table that was put online at the start of the year about the 72 clubs' points tallies in the calendar year 2020. And of the 72 clubs, I'm pretty sure Birmingham were like third or fourth bottom of that particular you know points table. Now, not all of that is Karanka, of course, but he wasn't able to find a formula to, you know, get Birmingham back up the table. And Pep Clotet before him had kind of done okay. You know, he'd steady the ship to a degree. But uh, Karanka did nothing. And I think it's the worst win percentage, along with Gianfranco Zola, of all the managers in post-relegation times in the last decade at Birmingham. So uh, it, it was a absolute fait accompli that he was going to go. Absolutely. Well, Lee Bowyer is the man who will attempt to, to keep Blues up. It's a bit of a unusual situation down at the bottom because Birmingham are not in the relegation zone. They've got 38 points from 37 games. Mm-hmm. And just on the other side of the dotted line is Rotherham, six points back, but with four games in hand, which it just adds to the whole muddled nature of things at the moment, I think. But, you know, a fan, I think, tends to have a, a gut feeling about an appointment. Sometimes it feels great. Sometimes you're not that into it, but you wait and see what happens. What's, what do you make of the appointment of, of Lee Bowyer? I'm far more into the Lee Bowyer appointment, certainly, than I was for uh, Harry Redknapp or, to an extent, Aitor Karanka. I, I, I thought he was the, the only man available, as it's turned out. Uh, other directors at the club wanted Lee Bowyer before Karanka's appointment, but Joanne Don Ren, the CEO, overruled them and went for Karanka. Uh, and, you know, there's a sliding doors moment. But, yeah, I, I, Lee Bowyer has an attachment to the club, of course, given that his only major honour as a player came with Birmingham with the League Cup win in 2011. And that squad he was part of at the time, which the previous season had got Birmingham's highest ever finish, was, you know, much loved by the fans. So, and the fans were singing his name at the Valley uh, the last time Birmingham fans were in the Valley and singing it to him. And he 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 actually admitted he was quite apologetic that he hadn't acknowledged that from the 
Birmingham fans at the time in the Jimmy C stand, but then he didn't want to anger the Charlton fans, I imagine, by you know giving too much credence to it. But having been at the club as a player, at least he understands the the, the fabric of the club. Although that can be a bit of a cliche sometimes, can't it, Ali? You know, a, 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 just because you play for the club, it doesn't mean you have a more innate wow. understanding of it. Particularly if there's been a decade gap between your playing career and your managerial career. But it's a start, uh, and given his team selection last night, where he actually played Jutkiewicz and Hogan as a as a strike force with two wingers to supply crosses for Jutkiewicz. Um, it's a simple game sometimes, football, <laughs> overcomplicated by some. Uh, and I think that lack of overcomplication will serve Lee Bowyer well, but we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination, as you mentioned, with Rotherham's position just beneath us. Yeah, I thought we might have seen the last... Duke backstick thumping header in a blues <laughs> shirt, but thankfully not. Um, so did. many of those over the years. That was classic Djokovic, and, and he'll have a big role to play. I mean, a lot of fans on social media on Wednesday night, I think getting caught up in the emotion of it to a, an extent, but but I think there's probably something to it. Commenting on a change in atmosphere and feeling from, you know, from Saturday night, thinking there's no chance that we'll survive, certainly not with Karanka at the helm, and this group of players aren't good enough, to beating a team in Reading in the playoff places and feeling, okay, you know, a bit of momentum, we have potentially got a chance here. Is that the same for you? Yes, I think so. I mean, a lot of Birmingham fans who I speak to say that this change should have been made 10 games ago. But, you know, that's all semantics, isn't it? What's done is done. And there are clubs that Birmingham can still quite comfortably overhaul. Even if you leave Rotherham out of the equation, there's still Coventry, um, Huddersfield, Derby County, Nottingham Forest even, who I saw last night losing at home to Norwich. They're not quite safe as it stands. So, you know, there's other teams in Lee Bowyer's sights to overhaul. But there's a lot of trick, tricky fixtures coming up. Watford on Saturday, for example, is a a perfect example. I don't think any team has won as many games in 2021 in the Championship than Cisco Munoz and, and Watford. So that's a proper stern test. That said, Reading were in decent form when they came to St Andrews last night. So, And it is the Championship where flipping anything can happen <laughs> that's true uh, yeah as you mentioned tough fixtures next up Watford Swansea Brentford for for Bowyer's Blues and mm. just a, a last word on the way the club is being run the owners Trillion Trophy Asia they've copped a lot of flack in the last few days as all this has gone on uh, mm-hmm. for the for the manner of it but also for uh, a whole host of poor appointments and the the, the fairly steady decline certainly in a footballing sense of, of Birmingham who have you know, flirted with relegation over the last few seasons each time. You mentioned Lee Bowyer has a connection to the club. And, and as you said it, I was thinking what might help him more would be solid foundation and, you know, the the support of those above him. Do you as a fan have any belief that that can be the case with the way that the club is being run from the top? It's funny how you mention the word solid foundation when the Tilton and Cop stands are... Um unsafe at the moment and need about a million quid spent on them because they're structurally unsafe which is just another example of how poorly the club is being run that they 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 don't know how to you know attack that if fans were allowed back in tomorrow they'd only be able to sit in the railway and main stands at St Andrews there's you know now this all comes down to the fans dissatisfaction with Juan Don Ren the, the CEO this was the guy that 
has appointed, who had a direct role, should I say, in appointing Steve Cottrell and Pep Clotet and Aitor Karanka. Other appointments that Trillian Trophy Asia have overseen have been from other people. Uh, Zhao, uh, who's the uh, chairman, uh, and other people on the board, Edward Zheng. The Bowyer appointment appears to be one that has been ordered from on high or a higher position than Dong. And his position has been under threat for some time as CEO because he's made a number of mistakes. He disclosed financial information in an interview with uh, BBC local radio in Birmingham that angered the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Um, you know, he was giving out information that he frankly shouldn't have done from a, a business point of view. But I don't see him going anywhere, Ali, because, you know, the, the Trillion Trophy Asia are, you know, very much cloak and dagger. They, they, they keep things very much in-house. There's very little that gets out about, you know, how they're feeling, how they're operating. I think Dong's actually deactivated his social media account. So there's even less... Uh, that we'll be able to see of how he's operating. Everybody seemed to think that if Karanka went, Dong would go too because they felt they were joined at the hip. Not so. He's still there. I think if there's going to be any fundamental change at Birmingham for the greater good, I think Dong has to be relieved of his duties. That said, because they're such a close-knit organisation, Trillian Trophy Asia, they won't bring somebody in from outside necessarily, they they would make an internal appointment for somebody who, again, would be a man of mystery or a woman of mystery to Birmingham fans and there would be no more accountability for that person. So it could be just like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, to use that old classic phrase. It's Bowie's in place and that's great because you know he will concentrate on training the players and, and getting their morale back up to acceptable levels. But everything off the field, which is both literally and figuratively falling apart, um, I think uh, Dong's ability to deal with that is, well, it's it's very much in question. I, I, I can't see in the long term him sticking around, but it's who he's replaced with. You know, um, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully Boyer and the team at least can sort of cut through the noise just for for nine games to go. Uh, tough fixtures coming up, but I note there's a there's a week in April where you play Rotherham, Nottingham Forest and then Derby uh, all in the space of seven or eight days. Oof. So that will be uh, huge at that stage. But Ian, thank you so much. Um, someone who we listen to commentate on countless EFL games a week and um, the, the, the knowledge and the depth and the way that you paint the picture is always a joy. So to have you on the podcast has been a real treat. Wow, thank you. That's really nice. Thanks, Ali. Bless you. Ian Danter, commentator and Blue Nose there. But up next, it's time to look ahead to the big games of the weekend across the EFL. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football League Show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. 
Right, weekend preview time with the help of our sponsors Paddy Power. And let's dive straight into the championship, George, where there is a clear standout fixture. Rivalries in Wales, Swansea versus Cardiff. A massive, massive game. And I'm excited because you have one of the best EFL stats I've ever heard. And I was thinking, just to annoy you, whether I should just say it at the top and see if you'd interrupt me, but I'm going to let you do it in a bit. But yeah, it's a massive game. Um, it's, it's always a big game. It's one of those where even if both teams are in mid-table, you'd say it was probably the, the biggest one of the weekend. But this, is, this comes in where Swansea are trying to maintain their promotion push where Cardiff are trying to maintain a playoff push both teams been in such good runs of form but maybe starting to go off the boil a little bit mm. and those who just look at results alone without delving a bit further will see Swansea's 3-0 defeat in midweek to Bournemouth as the anomaly you know it's their first win in, in five first defeat in five or six they've been picking up points fairly regularly but the performances to go alongside those have been fairly poor fairly consistently we've seen on social media for the last few weeks a lot of Swansea fans saying you know we have to improve or there's just no way we're going to be able to stay where we are and this result has been coming there's been a reliance on penalties in recent weeks we saw of course the Middlesbrough game where they conceded a very late equaliser only to go up the other end and win the game 2-1 thanks to a dubious penalty against Blackburn they they drew one all again thanks to a penalty Blackburn having many opportunities in the second half to win that game their only clean sheet in their last six games was against the Luton side who probably had the better chances on the day, could have had a penalty themselves and felt very, very aggrieved to lose the game 1-0. They've been running on fumes, to be honest, Swansea. And um, and when you look at the personnel, it it's kind of makes sense. We've seen Cabango and Guayhi, two key members of their defensive three, normally alongside Bennett, both out with injury. They're expected to return fairly soon. I think some thought that Guayhi would be back for the Bournemouth game. That wasn't the case. So Swansea fans hoping that at least one of those two will be fit for this massive derby. Jamal Lowe's form has really dipped. He hasn't scored in his last 14, but they have that quality. You know, when you look at sides who are struggling to, to make the system work, struggling to consistently threaten teams or have the better of games when you've got players like Conor Harrahan with his shooting ability and his set piece delivery when you've got Andre Ayew and his wealth of experience and his goal scoring and his quality of, of general play then you can you know star quality can nick you points maybe when they're not deserved so there'll be a little bit of a reliance maybe there has been a reliance on that maybe in the past but I think Steve Cooper will be hoping for a big reaction from his Swansea side here and maybe having a derby game like this where form where you know all other motivations go out of the window and, and for one day promotion probably isn't the most important thing here for Swansea fans it's just getting one over Cardiff um, maybe that will, will help them because they need something just to inject a little bit of life it's amazing to think just a few weeks ago we were talking about a side who are going to break records in the championship for their defence not going to happen not anymore well before I get into any sort of analysis as we know with a derby game, it's difficult to stay measured, stay calm. And just as I did before the Forest derby game a few weeks ago, I want to remind you, George, that I think you're scum. I hate everything <laughs> about you. And there's something about researching these games. It just really, really brings out the worst in me. And that's, I guess, what it's all about. This stat is magnificent. And the stat that you alluded to is this is the 30th season that Swansea and Cardiff have been in the same division. And neither side has ever done the double over the other one. So I dare say there have been many occasions 
in those 29 other seasons where one team has won the first game, headed into the second, full of hope, and that's been scuppered. So Swans, they beat Cardiff previously. Could they be the first ever team to do the double over the other in this Derby game? Well, possibly, because while you're right to say things aren't great at Swansea, I think we need to just make sure that we're all refreshed on how we think Cardiff are doing. Because you know George how Mick McCarthy took over until the end of the season and then Cardiff won every single game for forevermore and then Mick McCarthy got given a further two-year contract extension. Well, now it's one win in five for Cardiff and where they very, very briefly for I think 24 hours reached the playoff places, they're now six points off the playoffs, not helped by Barnsley's good form. And the goals have dried up and the opposition have had a bit more joy in their box. That's pretty straightforward stuff. They're creating so few chances from open play, Cardiff, and it's really holding them back. Clearly, their threat from set piece is immense. They've scored 22 goals from set plays. The next best in the championship is only 14. So they are way out on their own in that sense. And that's why they will always be a threat in this game. But they have to improve from open play as well. Otherwise, they're going to struggle to get anywhere near the Swansea goal, to be honest. They're not building the ball up properly. They're going so direct to Kiefer Moore. And while that worked for a few games, I'm not sure that is necessarily a viable long-term option. So they're going to have to find another way in this game, you'd think, unless they can just keep it tight themselves, unless Swansea really are a bit ropey at the moment and struggling to create their own chances from open play. It's one of those games where, because of the form of both sides, it's very difficult to to nail down a winner prediction. I'm going to lean towards a Cardiff 1-0 win, a Sean Morrison or an Aidan Flint goal from a set piece to keep the streak alive of neither team having ever done the double over the other. Paddy Power, are they in agreement with that? No. They've got Swansea as the favourites for this game, 6-4 to four, with Cardiff 15-8 to eight, and the draw 2-1. to one. But I do think those odds reflect, I think, where we come down on this one, that it's pretty hard to call and therefore quite an exciting one to watch this weekend. In League One, wow, it's third versus fourth, George. It's third versus fourth. It's Sunderland against Lincoln. And you're going to talk about Papa John's trophy legends, Sunderland (laughs) AFC. Yeah, streaky Lee doing streaky things. I mean, (laughs) or is is it a streak until, you know, surely until it goes wrong, we can't call it a streak. Maybe he is just turning Sunderland into the side that... Sunderland fans have expected them to be in League One for so long because they are absolutely flying. Now, not only have they um, have they won their last five, including that EFL Trophy win, not only have they finally won at Wembley, which is such a big deal for Sunderland fans, they've scored in their last 20 games in a row. And when you look at, at the players we speak about a lot, you know, Charlie White's goal-scoring form has clearly been a massive part of this. Mm. And, and Aidan McGeady's return to the side has been... You can't downplay the importance of that. Also looking at Geordie Jones, even though he's not even starting every game, his delivery and his creativity making a big impact when he does play. But there are loads of other factors here. It's not just the the front line who are doing well. You know, you look at the player who made his debut yesterday against Accrington in a 2-0 win, Ross Stewart, the giant striker signed from Ross County with an injury in in January. And he comes off the bench at halftime against Accrington after they'd struggled to break them down and scores... I mean, we've spoken about snapheaders on this podcast. 
Ross Stewart's header is one of the weirdest goals I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> it goes so high in the air. And given that he also starts, you know, a, a lot higher than most players in terms of his height, mm. um, it's it's a strange one. But either way, you know, it just shows the impact that he's had coming in. I, I liked Lee Johnson's quote after the game saying, one game, one goal, one win and one medal. Um, I'm not really sure that Ross Stewart should be getting a medal uh, there. So maybe the Papa John's adjudication committee will be meeting and, and calling Lee Johnson to explain himself after that comment. Um, but, you, but you look at the other personnel too. I mean, Carl Winchester is now proving to be a really popular signing uh, in from Forest Green in January. A few eyebrows raised amongst Sunderland fans, I think, are bringing in a, a player who wasn't particularly young from a League Two side. But he's his partnership with Max Power in the middle of the park really starting to draw the plaudits. And we have to talk about uh, Luco Nine, who mm. is playing centre-back and has been playing centre-back for the last 10 or so games, whether that's the left-hand side of a back three, which was the case initially, or at the moment, just playing left-sided centre-back alongside <laughs> Sanderson in a, in a, in a, in a four-man back line. This is a guy who has played right wing, right back, centre midfield, attacking midfield, now playing centre-back. I was just so thinking, if you'd, if you'd asked me at three-month intervals over the last three years, <laughs> what position Luco Nine played. I think we'd be on number five by now, yeah. at least, at least. Incredible, incredible. I mean, Lee Johnson's doing such a good job there and is having the immediate impact that I think a lot of Sunderland fans knew that a good manager could get out of this side. So they're, they're in great form. You know, they started this, well, in one of the, the big results for Lee Johnson at Sunderland was the 4-0 win against Lincoln in, in the reverse fixture. So Lincoln, I'm guessing, Ali, coming to this one with a bit of an axe to grind, a bit of revenge, but it by no means in the in a similar vein of form as, as their counterparts. <laughs> no, that is fair to say, George. Good bit of research you've done there. Pre-pod. Thank you very well much. Done. Uh, you've taken the team who have picked up 22 points in the last eight games, and I'll take the one that have picked up eight points from their last eight games, including two straight defeats. Uh, we touched on Jills earlier. That was... Lincoln that they pumped in midweek, 3-0. Jordan Graham starring, Vidane Oliver starring. On the other side of that result was a Lincoln side whose fans are getting a little bit concerned, I think, that their potential fairy tale surprise promotion is, is very much under threat. But I think Michael Appleton is worth listening to after the game. He is someone who does not get carried away when Lincoln are doing well. I think back to an interview on this podcast where we desperately tried to get him to say, we're going up, or we're the best team in the league, and he wouldn't be drawn on that sort of stuff. But the, the flip side of that is, in the bad times, he doesn't get too low either. This is what he thought about the 3-0 defeat to Gillingham. I'd rather concentrate on, for me, the, the performance, which was miles better than what it was on, on Saturday. It was more like us. We created numerous opportunities in terms of, you know, you didn't see the keeper making countless saves, but the areas of the field that we were getting in, God knows how many times we were in the opposition's box. It probably trebled the amount of times that they were in our box. Um, just that little bit let us down, that little bit of quality at the right time, whether it was a, a pass, a shot, a cross, whatever it may be, we just picked the wrong option. And that's what happens sometimes where you go through a little bit of a spell that we're in at the minute. Uh, yeah, I thought that was interesting reflection on what was clearly a very, very poor result and surprisingly bullish and quite upbeat, to be honest. He went on in the same interview to remind people again of how ahead of schedule they are, how much Lincoln overachieved in the first 30 games of the season. And I suppose just trying to add that layer of context to mitigate against the sorts of feelings that you get when you start a poor run like this at this stage of the season. And I'm kind of torn here, George, because I, 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 I sort of feel like this blip happens to every team. You know, Hull City have won 
five in a row. They're at the top of the league. But prior to that, I think they had one win in six or something like that. Mm. So it's not necessarily the fact of having a blip that concerns me. And to be honest, I didn't think the performances had nosedived too far until I saw Rochdale completely outplay them on the weekend. Then the Gillingham game, I felt like they were outfought. I think we've said before about Jills, they might not be the most talented team in the league, but maybe more so than than many other teams in the division. There's a prerequisite of physicality and being up for the battle that you have to match, that you have to meet when you play against Gillingham. And if you don't, then they'll run all over you. And, and maybe that was the case in the first half. So I, I'm slightly torn between how concerned I should be about Lincoln at this stage. It's a big test, obviously, against a Sunderland side in great form. But... You know, Sunderland played on Wednesday night and Sunday, Lincoln on Saturday and Tuesday. So you might point to that variable of maybe a bit more freshness. And part of me thinks that skillful youngsters like Morgan Rogers and, and Brennan Johnson might enjoy a bit more space to move into, which I think Sunderland will allow them to have because they'll be pushing for the win themselves. I think if I was a Lincoln fan, I'd be clinging to incredible away record this season. 10 wins from 16 league games. And yeah, I guess from a Sunderland point of view, you mentioned it. In Accrington, they took the aerial approach in the second half, played to their strengths, really. Wyke's uh, imperious form, especially with headed goals. He's got 11. No one else in League One has more than six. Uh, and Stewart as well, who looks like a, a gangly, awkward customer. Uh, that could play to their strengths and possibly expo- exploit some Lincoln weaknesses. So I, I think overall, I'm not feeling too confident for Lincoln ahead of this one. And Paddy Power certainly thinks Sunderland the, the most likely winners. They're four to five to win the game. Lincoln 16 to five and the draw five to two. League two, George, as I mentioned earlier, eight of the bottom nine played and none of them lost. And that's why Southend had a terrible week without even playing a game. They'll take on their game against Scunthorpe this weekend. Every game towards the bottom of League Two feels extra important at the moment. And you're going to take a look at Scunny and hopefully get a steer on what sort of nick they're in at the moment yeah well that i think we said a couple of weeks ago that scunthorpe was safe and it feels like they probably still are just about safe but a defeat here takes them from that safe category into the looking over the shoulders category and as we know pretty sick pretty quickly that looking over the shoulders category can turn into trouble so they'll be hoping to avoid defeat here and make sure they keep that gap between them and the drop zone they're winless in four, um, although they've only lost one game in that time. And, you know, we spoke about Streaky Lee. I think we can try and find a name for Neil Cox because under under Neil Cox's management, Scunthorpe have been a pretty streaky side as well. Earlier in the season, they lost eight games in a row. They've recently won four in the bounce. They normally follow up a defeat with another defeat. And at the moment, it feels like they're in a bit of a lean spell. But as I said with the Port Vale chat earlier, when you look a little bit closer and a little bit deeper... Things are actually looking a little bit better for Scunthorpe than the the bare results. You know, they failed to beat an Orient side and an Oldham side, two teams who've recently appointed new managers. Um, you, you probably would have expected or thought that Cox would want to win at least one of those games and take four points rather than two. The most recent against Oldham, they they uh, equalised in the 94th minute to make it one all, which in itself makes it into a better point than normal. But in the game, they absolutely battered Oldham. They were the better team by miles. Laurie Walker had joined Oldham on loan from MK Dons just a couple of days before and was making his debut and has made one of the best goal- goalkeeping debuts I can remember because <laughs> if it wasn't for him, Scunthorpe win that game fairly easily and he was only breached very, very late on. Oldham scoring with a pretty rare foray forward and a, and a strike through bodies from range uh, that left the keeper unsighted. 
know, they've got quality players. Uh, Kevin Fontaine is back fit. And normally when he's fit and playing regularly, Scunthorpe are a far better side. I know a lot of Scunthorpe fans still basically think that he's the best player in League Two, technically, um, even if we don't see that too often in terms of what he can do with the ball. Ryan Loft, his strike partner, um, has been the top goalscorer for them this season, also looking in decent form. That They're an OK side. And, and under a, a rookie manager, they are... I think they've improved as the season has gone on. Um, And even though results haven't been too good recently, they showed again in midweek against a side who we can probably level off at a similar level to Southend at the moment in Oldham. Um, They've shown that they can be far, far better than those, even if they didn't pick up the three points. Mm. They're up against the Southend side. I've been trying to get a handle on this morning. As I say, they had a terrible week without even playing. And... The story of their season is interesting because, of course, in the first portion of the season, they were about as bad a team as we've seen at this level. They had nine points after 16 games, a minus 22 goal difference at that point. And it has certainly felt like they've trended upwards. It's felt like they've got better. They're clearly not the same basket case that they were in those first 16 games. From the next 19, they've got 21 points. So just over one point per game, a goal difference of minus six, clear improvement in the results, and seven teams have a worse record in that time. So, you know, there's a bit of hope for Southend. The the problem is that was due, or those points mostly were due to a flurry of five wins in seven around the turn of the year, and we are well past that now. Winning... And scoring is still a huge issue for this South End side. Just two wins in their last 14 now. And only three goals scored in eight games. So, yes, they've improved, specifically defensively and out of possession. They are good enough. They are well drilled, which is credit to Mark Mosey. And they stay in games. They avoid heavy defeats. But the next stage, actually posing a threat to the opposition in the final third is still missing massively and you can't get very far without that, sadly. Um, There's still a five-point gap to Barrow who have played two games fewer and clearly look in better form. Eight points to Cole U. So uh, there's still time for Southend to put together a similar run that they had uh, around the turn of the year, as mentioned, but it kind of has to happen sooner rather than later. Let's say starting this weekend, at Scunny. Scunthorpe favourites with Paddy Power 6 to 5, Southend 12 to 5 to win this game. The draw 21 to 10. I, I can't see it being anything other than fairly low, low margin. Um, a goal here or there, either side will probably decide it. And maybe Southend could get that bit of luck or a bit of final third quality that they've been lacking recently. And that is our show. Big thank you to Ian Danter for joining us and thank you for listening. Matt and the gang are back on Monday talking relegation run-ins with Ryan Conway and we're back on Thursday. So see you then. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and by following at the Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football League show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.